Neville's welcome to you, especially if you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning. And as we've already heard, we're continuing in our series, Living in the Light of Christ's Return, looking at 2 Thessalonians. And we're coming to the last of that series this morning, and we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, And feel free to turn that up in your Bible, um, page 990 in the Pew Bible, or look it up on your phone. And we thought last week uh, about how we had seen Paul shift his focus from this cosmic drama of the end times that he has laid out for them in chapter 2, and he has moved his focus down to the lives of the individual Thessalonians. And he continues now in chapter 3 in that same vein. And he is dealing with issues that they are facing in their lives and in their church life as well. And as we we read it, it's hard not to feel a contrast between the vision of, of lawlessness and evil and wickedness that he has painted in chapter 2, and then the world of the church, the world of the Christians that he is dealing with in chapter 3. It's almost like he's saying that lawlessness, that chaos is going on out there. That spirit of lawlessness is already at work. But you are gathered here within the church. You are God's people. And this is how you're to live your lives in the light of that. This is how you're to live your lives in the light of Christ's return. So what, what does Paul say to them? Well, let's read the chapter and then we'll think about it. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
So, Paul packs quite a lot into into these uh, 18 verses here, and we don't have time to think about it all. But I want to pull out some of the priorities, some of the things that Paul feels it's important to tell the Thessalonians to do. And the first one is this. He says, pray for the advance of the gospel. He starts the chapter with finally. Um, and finally often is not really finally in, in New Testament writings. It's just a way of saying we're moving to a different section. Um, and so Paul says, finally, or, or having thought about what we've thought about now, what I want you to think about is pray for us. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So Paul is keen that in their church life, they establish prayer for gospel priorities. And it's interesting that, isn't it? Because off the back of the grand drama of the end times that he's just painted and God in control of that, and and their own salvation and their own lives that we thought about last week and God in control of that, the temptation again would be idleness and passiveness. And yet Paul says you must pray that the gospel advances, that the gospel surges forward in the light of the lawlessness that's abounding in the world, in the light of the persecution that you're facing in your city at at Thessalonica, in the light of some of the difficulties that are happening in your own church, in the light of all of that, pray that the gospel would surge forward. And that, that plea from Paul tells us a few things. The first thing is it tells us Paul's priority, tells us Paul's desire. If you were to meet uh, one of the the billionaires that exist in this world, and they were to say to you, um, ask me anything, and if it's within my resources, if it's within my ability, I'm going to give it to you. Now, how you would respond to that offer would tell you quite a bit about your priorities. And most of us publicly would say we'd want to give it to charity. But in reality, we'd say something like, could I have a bigger house, or could I have a few million pounds, or something like that. And so, when, when you stand in front of someone who has the ability to do things, what you ask for tells you about your priorities. And here is Paul, a child of God, coming before his father. He can ask him anything, and what is it that Paul asks for? He says, pray for us. Not that I would have a good time, not that my life would be easy, but pray that the gospel would surge forward. And he does ask that they would be spared from evil and wicked men. But I think it's important to see that as sitting under his plea that the gospel would advance. Paul encountered men who stood against him in his ministry, men like Alexander. And so Paul's prayer is that he would be delivered from them so that the gospel could surge forward. So firstly, we see Paul's desire in that. And secondly, we see as well where Paul feels his confidence lies. This is a man who was, who was tremendously well-educated, tremendously intelligent, a gifted writer, a, a gifted communicator or evangelist, um, and yet what does he say, that mature Christian, to these young new believers? He says, pray for us. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Paul knows that prayer is essential because just like our salvation last week is under God's hand, if the gospel is going to surge forward, it's going to be by God's hand. Paul holds up in these verses, the Lord is faithful. Isn't that what he says? The Lord is faithful. He will establish and guard you. 
a few weeks ago, Jim was explaining to us the culture in the city at that time. And the culture was one where ordinary people like us would try and find a wealthy person, a powerful person, who would do things for them. They would give them money. They would give them opportunities. Perhaps they would introduce them to people. And in return, the ordinary folk like us, we would give them our loyalty. We would give them support. We would talk about them in private. And they, they were the patron and we were the client. And that was so ingrained in their thinking. This is how I get ahead in the world. I need to have a patron who look after me. And Paul is saying here, the Lord is the true patron. The Lord is faithful. If you want someone to protect you, if you want someone to establish you in this world, that desire to find someone to do that for you, you need to locate that in the Lord Jesus. So the Lord is faithful. And I suppose the question for us in these verses is this. Do we recognize that same gospel priority in our own lives, in our own prayers in private, in our prayers as a church? Are we on our knees earnestly asking for the Lord to surge the gospel forwards in this country, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities? Do we reflect that same gospel urgency that Paul feels? And so that's, that's Paul's first instruction to them. Pray for the advance of the gospel. Secondly, he says, live under the authority of the apostles' teaching. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and that you will do the things we command. Four times in the chapter, Paul uses the word command. Talks about what they ought to do. Talks about them obeying him. And a command is an imperative. A command is something that you have to do. I have a friend, and if the two of us are trying to do something and he's helping, every command gets questioned. You say, right, we need to, we need to lift these and put them over here. Why do, we, why do we need to put them there? Why do we need to lift three at a time? Do we not need to lift eight at a time? Could we not just leave them here and bring the thing to that? And, and that's not how commands work. Those of you who have young children will feel like you've signed a sponsorship deal with Nike because you repeat their catchphrase all day long to your children. Just do it. Just do it. That's not how commands work. They are not up for debate. And if any of us were in the armed forces, for example, we would know that. If you were an enlisted soldier and the sergeant says, start digging a hole there, you don't start to say, well, should we not put it over there? You keep digging until he says, stop. And the reality for people like that is sometimes following those commands involves sacrifice. And there's no option to say, well, perhaps I'll set that one out. Well, I don't like the look of that mission. A command is a command because it has authority. And Paul is very clear here that in the church, his teaching as an apostle has authority. And in verse 7 and verse 11, he talks about these people who are idle. And, and that idea of being idle is really more an idea of being disorderly, of being out of line. If you looked at a row of soldiers, and a couple of them were sort of refusing to stand where they should, they're being disorderly, they're being out of line. And so the, 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 the context here is that people were being out of line, disorderly with Paul's teaching on work. And Paul's saying that that's really hard not to think that being disorderly like that is really more in keeping with the spirit of lawlessness that we thought about in chapter 2 than what should be going on in God's church. There should be order because we sit under the authority of Paul's teaching. And we're still under that authority today. Paul's commands, the canon of Scripture, 
still has authority over the Lord's church today. God is not the God of disorder. God has given us commands that are there with authority to be done. So pray for gospel priorities. Live under the authority of the apostles' teaching. Be prepared to counter the culture around you. Paul seems to have this real be in his bonnet about work in these verses. And he uses some really strong words about it, doesn't he? He says, uh, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He's certainly not pulling his punches here with regard to work. What, what really is going on? Well, the scenario unfolding in Thessalonians is, is that there were some people in the church who could have worked who were refusing to work. They would have had a patron who was providing enough for them that they didn't have to do anything. Now, it's really important that we understand that these are not people who are unable to work. There are many people then and today who through physical illness or disability are simply not able to work. And Paul is not poking them with a stick and saying you really ought to be doing it. Paul is talking to people who have no desire to work, no will to work, who could be and aren't. And I suppose that's still a problem for us today. I mean, work often certainly in my own heart, is something that I do to pay the mortgage. There's no joy or or benefit in it for me. It's something I do simply to get my pay at the end of the month. And the ultimate fantasy, I think, for most of us in the Western world would be if we could just win the lottery and then we wouldn't have to work. And yet, Paul, certainly on the surface here, is saying to them, work is a good thing. And that is the teaching of the whole Bible. From creation, when God made the world and it was perfect before sin entered into it, Adam was tasked with working in the garden and tending it. Work is a creatorial mandate, and it is given by God, and it is a good thing. And so Paul, Paul is, is challenging that culture around them. He's saying that, that, that work is a good thing from God, and that was recovered. One of the many things the Reformation and the Reformers gave us was a recovery of the idea of work as a gift from God. And so Paul is trying to establish that in their minds. And the other problem is the people who weren't working had too much spare time, and they were being busybodies. They were were causing trouble. They they were interfering in other people's lives. And Paul says, you should be out working quietly to earn your own keep. So firstly, Paul's saying, well, work is a good thing. But there is a deeper thing going on here, and it, it tackles the culture around them head on. As we've thought, we're going back again to that idea of the patron and the client, the wealthy providing for, for, for the common. And, and it, to be a, a patron, to be one of those wealthy people sitting in the church, you would realize that if I'm going to be obedient to Paul's teaching, I have to cut all of these people loose. I have to let them go. I have to say I'm not doing it anymore. Or if you were sitting there and you were one of the clients and you had a great day, you would hear this and you would realize that you're going to have to say, actually, I can't take the handouts anymore. I'm I'm going to have to do something different. And it's hard really for us without that structure in our society to get the idea of how how shameful that would have been in that world. I I suppose the closest thing is like a politician standing up and saying, I don't want anyone to vote for me. Or or a business person standing up and saying, I don't want anyone to buy my products. It just ran totally against the grain. It was totally counter to the culture around them. And yet Paul saw something in that culture that he felt was a threat to the church and said, you've got to be counter to that. 
you've got to walk away from that cultural baggage. I wonder what is counter for us in our culture today. Sometimes perhaps it seems almost everything. The idea that your identity and who you are is not something that you create yourself is counter to our culture today. The idea, like we've just thought about, being under authority. Imagine saying your life is lived under the authority of of a a thousand, two thousand year old book. That is counter to our culture, the ethic of life. To stand up and say that we believe that actually life begins at conception and life is life in the womb, that is counter to our culture. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it is our job to go out and pick fights where there are no fights for us, but the reality is that consistent living with God's Word will bring us into friction with the culture around us, will bring us into uncomfortable contact with the culture around us. And part of that is our job. Part of that is our job is to be salt and light. The good news is only good news because it's saying that people need to be doing something different. You know, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer starts to invent things, and one thing he invents is an everything's okay alarm. And he says it goes off every three seconds as long as everything's okay. That's no use. The gospel is not the gospel if it tells people in the world around us that everything's okay, everything's fine, just keep going the way you're going. We have to be prepared to live our lives under the authority of God's Word, knowing that that will bring us counter to the culture around us, and that that is what we are for. So, pray for gospel priorities. Live under the authority of the apostles' teaching. Be prepared to counter the culture around you. It says to follow the example of mature believers, which we have no time for. And finally, he says... Use gracious discipline when needed. So there's two issues going on in the church here. There's, there's the disorderly conduct, more in common with the lawlessness of chapter 2 than what should be going on in the church. And there's this practice of not working and, and getting your income from a patron, living as a handout. And Paul sees those two problems as linked. But the interesting thing is, Paul then places a responsibility on every member of the church to deal with that. Paul hands that responsibility over to all of those within hearing of the letter. He does it twice. He says, keep away from any brother, verse 6, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with what we've taught you. And then again, verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And Paul is talking here, it's important to get straight in our heads, about people who are being knowingly disobedient to the teaching that Paul has given. This is not someone who who hasn't yet understood. Neither is it someone who has fallen in sin and is struggling but is repentant and seeking to to, um, walk away from that. Those are people that we get alongside and we help and support. Paul is talking here about people who have heard his teaching, understood his teaching, and decided that I'm not going to do it anyway. I'm not going to do it anyway. And Paul says, if anyone does that, if anyone stands up in your church and says, I know what Paul's saying, but I've decided I'm going to keep my wealthy patron on, and I'm not going to work. Paul says, you'd have nothing to do with someone like that. 
Just imagine the the environment that they were living in. Their church was under persecution. The city didn't like them. Um, And so their their old social networks had fallen apart on them. Their old connections to the world had had fallen away from them. And, And the church really was all that they had. Now, if in that setting, the church distanced itself from you, suddenly it leaves someone very isolated. Let's be honest, that comes close to the idea of a public shaming. And shame is something that is frowned on in our world today. But Paul builds this this disciplining on a foundation of grace, doesn't he? He says, don't treat this person like they're your enemy. You you need to warn them like they're your brother. And so so why is it so important that if someone is openly defiant of the teaching of the apostles that we distance ourselves from them? Well, there's, there's two reasons. The first thing is it protects the church. Someone walked in here tomorrow and, and stood up and said, I've, I've taken a mistress and I, I'm, I'm having an affair and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I know what, what you, you, the Bible teaches, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that teaching is that we should then distance ourselves from someone who is unrepentant like that. And the first thing is that it says that sort of behavior we don't tolerate. That sort of behavior is not acceptable. Within the church of God, within the body of Christ, that is not okay. That is not allowed. If you said, I'm going to pay my employees in cash because I I, I keep it off the books. If you said, I know what what the elders have, have told us we're doing here, but I'm going to be defiant to that. Those are all things that Paul says, that sort of willful disobedience, we're to to step away from that. We're not to give it a a, a hearing. We're not to give it a warm reception. We're not to passively or actively encourage it. In fact, we're we're to step away from that. We're to distance ourselves from that. And the first thing that that does is it sends a clear message to the person, to the body of Christ, and to anyone else looking in that that, that's not okay. You can't just do what you want here. We're under the authority of God's Word. So the first thing is it protects the church. But the second thing it does, and I think it's probably Paul's main emphasis here, is that it protects the person. Protects that person who's gone astray. Because it has the effect of forcing a choice on them. You can't, you can't walk in two worlds. You can't say, well, I'm going to do what I want and, 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 and try and keep up things in the society around me, but I'm also going to come to church and have the benefits there. Just imagine last night in, in the, the Champions League final, if Salah, halfway through the first half, had, had just turned around and started playing for the other side for a few minutes, and then had turned back and started playing for his own team again, and then turned around and started playing for the other side again. What, what would happen there? I can tell you the first thing that has happened is his other teammates would think, well, I'm not passing the ball to him anymore. Because you can play for us, so you can play for them, but you can't play for both. You can't have your foot in two camps. You're either under the authority, or you're not under the authority, but you don't get to eat your cake and have it. And so it protects the person because it brings their behavior into focus for them. And prayerfully and and lovingly, we hope that we do that and that the person sees the error of their ways, comes to repentance, and is restored. That's what Paul says. Warn them as a brother who you love. Now, this is hard because it is much easier just to turn a blind eye to it. It's much easier just to let them get on with their sin and and, and keep your head down and think, well, it's not not really my place. 
And yet Paul says, if someone is so openly and so defiantly sinning in the church, it is all of our responsibility in love for that person to try and set them straight. Because to allow them to continue on in their sin and their error is not terribly loving at all. In fact, it shows that you don't really care about what's happening to that person. So are we happy to let people carry on in error, or are we prepared to graciously use discipline? So, what have we thought about in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? Paul has, has taken this little church in this letter over such a huge area, from their own persecution and their own sufferings in chapter 1, to the unfolding drama of end times in chapter 2, and now how they should be living in the light of that in their church. And he says, pray for the advance of the gospel. Live under the authority of the apostles' teaching. Be prepared to counter the culture. Follow godly examples. And use gracious discipline when needed. And through 2,000 years of history, those words echo down to us today as well. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all.